You're listening to a Hindustan Times podcast brought to you by HD Smartcast. Hi, this is Manjula Narayan and this is the Books and Authors podcast. And so today we have with us uh, Samrat Chaudhary who's written Northeast India a political history. Hi Samrat. Hi Manjula. You know, I mean I'm I've been I'm reading the book and it is actually quite a feat. You know, I'm quite amazed at uh, uh, at what you accomplished. Honestly, I mean, I'm not I'm not fibbing. I'm not just saying this to like sort of uh, be nice to you. <laughs> I'm just saying because it's like so vast, but you've made it you've made it understandable. You know, and it's a complicated place. So, thank you so much. Thanks, <laughs> thanks, Manjula. Thank you so much. Uh, thanks for having me on your. so firstly and thanks for you know i'm glad that you liked it and found it readable that's basically the idea that's basically the, the thing that i was trying to do i wanted to write a readable introductory account mm-hmm. which anyone uh, who is interested in the region uh, from within the region or outside the region uh, would find useful it is not meant to be a professional history or an academic work it is meant to be a a readable introductory popular account for students and lay persons mm-hmm. and you know like i was saying you i mean uh, academic historians you know tend to be very heavy on the jargon and uh, you know the matter is solid but it's very difficult for a lay person to digest you know it's like they're only talking to each other whereas this uh, you know what you've presented you your your research is 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 very deep uh, but you've presented it all you know in a in a fashion that anybody can understand and gain a lot from so you know was that um, i mean since you are a journalist it could it comes easier to you i guess than to an academic but uh, what were the challenges like that you know well uh, basically northeast india is so diverse so basically every state has its own history and every community within every state has its own history yes and uh, so therefore to write something which brings it all together first of all one had to research the history of each state and each community separately mm-hmm. and uh, that is why the book is organized by is chapterized by state because yes. there's no other way to actually do it you can't do it as a as a region because each part has its own history mm-hmm. and uh, so the research was very difficult and finding material was also difficult partly because in the pre colonial period many of these cultures were oral cultures and so there are no written histories from that period yes uh, there are of course royal chronicles in the case of places where there were ancient princely states for yes. example assam or manipur or tripura but uh, in many other places one doesn't have much material to draw upon from the pre colonial period there are oral histories Mm. which i have used to the extent mm. that i could find them or mm. uh, so those were limitations of course it was an additional limitation for me that i am not uh, plugged into academic networks i don't have access to a lot of material and resources that somebody in an institutional setting might have access to i had to make do with whatever i was able to get my hands on in certain sense uh, because uh, i didn't have those financial resources or uh those institutional resources which would have perhaps aided in getting more material mm and you mentioned it i think in your preface that uh, you know you did a lot of online i mean you um, accessed a lot of matter through the online academic uh, 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 you know resources and that yeah, kind of i thing. found yeah 
I used Internet Archive and a lot of books were available then. Many of them are not so easily accessible anymore, but I was able to access a lot of old books, which was a godsend. It was very helpful yes. because those books are not available anymore. One can't get them even if one is ready to put down money for it. So basically, that was very useful. And I also used a lot of academic papers from this world. So my work is basically, uh, it, it draws upon the work of historians. Uh, and it draws upon the work of historians who worked on each of these states and uh, tries to bring it together in a simple and detailed Mm. And a lot of the work of the evangelicals also who kind of put down the Oriole cultures and gave them their, I found that such an interesting aspect, uh, uh, creating the grammar and uh, all those things, right? The script in many places. Yes. So uh, it was a process which was repeated in several of the states. What happened was basically that the first printing presses the first dictionaries, the first grammars. In other words, the standardization of the vernacular happened uh, in the colonial period and it was usually done by missionaries in many almost cases. Yes. They were interested in, in publishing the Bible in the local yes. language. And yes. for that, they had to figure out what was the local language. Before that, in the spoken language, you have dialects and there's a multiplicity of dialects. Yes. And uh, uh, you know, the sacred language might be Sanskrit or something else, but uh, the language of administration might be something Yes. But for the, for the common people, there's no standard vernacular as such. There are only a multiplicity of dialects. So what happens after the missionaries arrive is that they start standardizing language for print. And so the process which uh, Benedict Anderson wrote about in Imagine Communities, which is basically the standardization of languages which leads to a standardization of identities, and yes. then to an idea of an imagined community based on that language, that emergence of linguistic identities follows from. So that yes. has been very uh, important thereafter for the political development of each of those states in the region, and therefore it, it becomes an important part of the political history of Northeast. It's not actually only those states because even in Kerala, I think it was a uh, German or German missionary, I think, Gundert, who, who did the first uh, dictionary of Malayalam also. So I think perhaps throughout India, this was the case. I mean, I like yes. the, yeah, the, the idea even, was... Even in, yeah. in Bengali, even for the Bengali language. Yeah. Mm. Assamese, Bengali, many languages. Yeah, yeah, it happened during the colonial period. The first dictionaries and the first grammars emerged. Because before that, we didn't have these standard vernaculars, standardized for print. So the standardization for print did happen in many or most cases during the colonial period. Hmm. The way that European precision kind of emerged in. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Right. So going back to, uh, to the Northeast, you know, um, how much of this interest in the area has emerged from your own life, you know? A lot of it. I mean, I grew up in Shillong and yes. uh, I was always interested in understanding the place and my surroundings in a certain sense. But I had left and I worked in Delhi, Bombay, Bangalore. And then eventually, after chucking up my last job in Bombay, started re-engaging with the Northeast through the process of writing my previous book, The Gated yes. River, A Journey yes. Along the Brahmaputra. And when I was doing that journey, mainly through Assam and Arunachal, I re-immersed myself. I became re-immersed automatically in, in, in what was happening around me. 
and I became interested in, in once again, interested afresh in the issues of the region. And so then two, two more books came out of that one book. One is this one, The Political History, and the other was uh, Insider Outsider, the, which is an anthology on the issue of belonging and unbelonging in Northeast India. Yes. And so both of those actually were sparked to some extent by by the travels that uh, happened during the writing of the Braden. Mm-hmm. But also, you know, I'm interested in, because when I was reading it, you know, um, I, one knows this, but a lot of the um, issues in the Northeast emerge out of the uh, migrations, right, from uh, what is now Bangladesh and, uh, you know, uh, during the partition and afterwards and all the conflicts, the uh, you know, which led to people fleeing into the Northeast and, and that and, and the uh, knockdown effects of that. Right, which the Northeast is still uh, um, kind of battling, grappling with. So, as a person who comes from a, you know, who's a Bengali, how did it affect you, you know? Well, we've had these uh, questions of migration swirling around the Northeast for the longest time. Yes. And uh, the, uh, when I was growing up, personally, uh, I did see in Shillong, uh, I was then a, a child, but I remember the, you know, the riots of 1987, 91, 92. I was in school at that time. Uh, so we had uh, riots going back to 1979, and many or most of those riots actually targeted non tribals in general, but Bengalis were a special uh, target uh, along with. Later on, uh, Nepali speakers, Gurkhas. Because you see, basically the problem is that Bengalis and Nepalis are cross-border communities. And so it is very easy for a Bengali to be labeled as a Bangladeshi or for a Nepali speaker to be labeled as a Nepali from Nepal. So the issues of citizenship and identity become very mixed up in the case of cross-border communities. And that is something we are seeing now with the tribal community of the Kukis as well in Manipur. Yes. Uh, where uh, general widespread suspicion seems to attach that they're all, uh, you know, a lot of them, many of them have come from Myanmar, mm. which may or may not be correct. It may or may not be the case. So similarly, uh, there were suspicions and anxieties in Northeast India, dating back to before the partition. It's mm. a process or it's a history which goes back in the case of Assam, uh, pre-independence Assam. It goes back yes. to the 19. 19- uh, late 1920s, early 1930s onwards. And by 1937, when the Assam Assembly begins to function in pre-independence, mm. uh, it's already an issue in the politics of Assam. So it's been there for a very long time and uh, it remains there. And uh, all of us who've grown up there have seen it playing out uh, in some form or the other, often in very ugly ways as mob violence directed against the imagined outside. Okay. So, uh, um, so when you, you know, when you started, when you set out to do this book, you know, and I like, uh, I wondered when I picked this up, you know, why, why nobody else had thought of doing this before? Or is it that I don't know of anybody else who's thought of doing this before? Because this whole, and it's a huge subject, like while I'm reading each state and they're all so complicated, you know, we're calling them uh, the Northeast, but each, like your book brings out how each of them is complex, 
you know like every state in india yeah. is has its own history has its own i mean you know we are in, we've imagined ourselves into a composite nation but we are like you know separate we have our own identities so like that you know how how did you this like why hasn't anybody else decided to do this before you well i, I honestly <laughs> don't know why anybody didn't do it before <laughs> i am sure it may have been attempted in the past but i also have not come across an, another popular account at any rate which tries to bring together the entire office for that matter i haven't even found an academic work which brings together the whole office i believe that there it was attempted once okay. uh, uh, in several volumes but i could not find any of those volumes when i was researching it would have been very useful for me so <laughs> i couldn't lay my hands on any of those volumes so in the academy there was one person who tried it uh, mm-hmm. outside the academy i don't know if anybody has actually attempted it uh, uh, i suppose it's it's also because it might seem daunting it was daunting i mean i would have myself believed that it can't be done Mm. but then i thought that when people have written histories of india as a whole so yeah. i'm sure it if the history of india can be written or for that matter the history of asia or the world can be written then surely the history of northeast india is also possible to write so it will be difficult but it can be done mm-hmm. so when you spoke to people you know when you were spoke, uh, speaking to them for this especially the political you know intricacies of uh, each state so say say since manipur is what is uh, now on you know everybody's top of mind it's such a complicated situation you know with this ancient monarchy and then you know kind of breaking breaking down which is also the case in tripura but in, in manipur you know everybody doesn't know they, some people are just making it out to be just a, a hindu and christian versus christian uh, thing which it's not it's much deeper than that so you know all these aspects of it you've brought brought that out and how uh, you know especially in, in the in the case of manipur in the manipur chapter <laughs> at the very end i thought you know this this sentence was very apt because you said Manipur remains suspended in an uneasy peace prone to descending into fraternal conflict just as it was a thousand years ago in the days when clan warred against clan and tribe against tribe and i thought that's very prescient because you know this all these things just happened just now but the book must have gone into print much before that right so uh, the book went into print just after but i couldn't touch it yeah. because the, these things happened in, in starting third of may and the manuscript was done in january yeah that's and, what uh, so so the proofs and all were finished uh, before any of this happened and uh, you know i couldn't touch it after this things these things started happening in one yeah. and uh, much as i would have liked to actually <laughs> uh, so uh, so yeah but i think the background of what has happened uh, it was already discerned i mean i didn't expect it to blow up in the way it did uh, but i could see that the uh, situation was not exactly stable Mm. in other words that the historical issues remain unresolved and uh, that their interlocking issues they related to issues in nagaland in yes. burma yes you know, in the broader neighborhood and uh, so basically 
uh, it, it, it was it was written from an awareness that that all of this is happening. Uh, I don't see it as being a religious issue per se. Religion yeah. may have come into it in some form, but uh, in Northeast India, the conflicts are generally ethnic rather than religious. Mm. They may be ethnic or ethno-linguistic, but we are not uh, familiar with religious conflict as being the primary axis of conflict in Northeast India. Mm. And uh, so uh, even now it is not a religious issue because the Nagas are also Christians and they're also tribals, mm. but they're not part of the current conflict in Manipur. If it was a religious conflict between Hindus and Christians, then it would involve both the Nagas and the Therefore, yeah. it is quite clear that it is not a religious conflict, it is an ethnic conflict between mm. the natives and the Christians. Mm-hmm. Okay. And I found that bit also really interesting when, you know, you've delved into the earlier religion, the pre, I mean, there's this idea in India that uh, apart from the Adivasis, Hinduism is the aboriginal uh, religion almost, you know, in many ways. Um, or after Buddhism, then it's Brahmanism, you know, that's sort of very like easy. So we give these pat things. You know, but um, the the Sanamehi religion and the overthrowing of it by uh, you know by a, a king who accepts uh, a Brahmin um, advisor. You know, all that those details were really fascinating, and that's really recent, right? 18th century or something. Yeah, so yeah you know, and, and and the fights between the Vaishnavites and the uh, others. You know. Yeah. Yeah. We are now all dumped yeah. under the rubric of like Hinduism, <laughs> you know, yeah. the label of Hinduism. So those sort of things, I mean, I found those details really good, you know, really fascinating. And uh, so you want to talk about how, you yeah. know, you know, about those things? Yeah, well, uh, yeah so the history of, uh, of uh, Hinduism in several parts of Northeast India is fairly recent. It's not a... People have been going back and forth, so there was movement uh, back and forth uh, for a very long time. One can, however, trace such kinds of movements of uh, Hindu priests or Hinduism as a faith, uh, even to Cambodia or as far east, even sometimes as the Philippines, uh, where I uh, a place I'm familiar with, uh, where one can Hinduism and Philippines. Yes. Seriously, yes, what variety of what variety of Hinduism? I mean, like you know, like well, there are traces. There are there are traces of uh, of <laughs> of a Hindu past uh, in some of the southern areas of the Philippines, which basically are close to Indonesia. Uh, okay. So in Indonesia, they did have uh, yeah. uh, you know uh, in Bali they still do Bali they still uh, do in other parts of Indonesia they did have Hindu kingdoms. And uh, those kingdoms may at some point in the past have included some some parts of the Philippines, including perhaps even southern Luzon, uh, because, for example, their kings were called Rajas. They have memories of uh, of holy beings called Divatas, and uh, there have been some archaeological artifacts found as well. For example, I believe an idol, I don't remember if it was of Ganesha, but it was probably of Ganesha was found at some point. So, so, so there may have been some movement even as far east as the Philippines, which is the eastern seaboard of the eastern <laughs> seaboard of Asia, yeah. and uh, as far east as you can go without crossing the Pacific. Yeah. Uh, so that sort of movement was there, and definitely that sort of movement must have been there in two parts of what is now northeast India as well. But the uh, 
sort of conversion of the king, which which was in the time of kings a very important thing. Yes. Uh, is something that we start seeing uh, fairly late in the day. In, for example, the case of Manipur, which you just mentioned, which is the 18th century. And uh, where the King Chirai Rongpa was converted according to their royal, royal chronicles after, after 1700 AD. And uh, the faith really became uh, well established during the reign of the king who is remembered as Garib Nawaz, which was his yes. title. Yes. Uh, a very powerful king who conquered parts of Burma uh, yeah. <laughs> during his reign, uh, but who was also to some extent intolerant towards other faiths. Yes. After his conversion to Hinduism, he became uh, uh, very devoted to his own faith and rather intolerant of other faiths. Mm -hmm. And uh, so then that led, in fact, to clashes even with uh, with the earlier existing faith in Manipur of the natives, the Sanamahi thing. And yes. so there are memories and records of those clashes between uh, the Sanamahi and the newly uh, powerful or, or uh, you know, newly uh, sort of raised to the status of royal, royal faith Hindus. Mm -hmm. And uh, there were similar incidents in some cases in the Ahom kingdom also, because when the Ahoms came, they had their own faith as well. Mm -hmm. And uh, then eventually over a long period of time, the mm -hmm. kings and, and the nobles gradually were Hinduized. And uh, it's only again fairly late in the day that we start seeing strong royal backing for Hinduism. The king converts and then starts propagating Hinduism as the faith of the, you know, the royal family. And so that happens fairly late in the day, even in the case of Assam. Mm. So, uh, so yeah, so it's a, it's, it's been, it's an interesting, uh, sort of, uh, looking at the spread because in some cases this happened after the, uh, the first Western colonials had already arrived. After, for example, the Portuguese were by then already in Goa and they were already in Chittago. Mm. By the time that you know, the king is converting in Manipur. Yeah. So after 1700. I didn't think of that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Because, you know, I remember another author told me about how, um, uh, you know, somebody in her family, I remember, somebody in her family, like one of her earlier grand uncles or something was a, was a, or her grandfather, if I'm not mistaken, was a, um, was a missionary for uh, the Brahmos. You know, and he had gone into the northeast, and there was a, like a proper Brahmo mission there. So, yeah, yeah. you know, those are, these are all things. I mean, they're it's all worthy of a book by itself, <laughs> and I don't know who's going to pick it yeah. up, but uh, who's going to pick up the, the 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 baton of doing it? But there is a book there also. So, like, really, while I was reading this, I was thinking, wow, you know, I want to read that as well. <laughs> Okay. So hopefully it'll spark something in other readers or you know so yeah and even the Assam bit I mean you said like, I'm looking for that part where you know you, you said that the Ahom kings originally came from you know this um, location somewhere in China and then somebody else yeah. somebody else I think one of the uh, uh, one of the activists was uh, pushed back into pushed back into the same area in the end if I'm not mistaken, uh, tribal raids, blah, blah, blah. Where is this? 
you know yeah so uh, basically the, uh, the the history is about it comes from a thai kingdom known as mongmao and uh, in fact there is still still an area of that name in today's northern myanmar it's a why area of myanmar there is a place which bears that name and in yunnan in china uh, they have the uh, they have an autonomous they call them dai dai rather than tai which is say uh they have an autonomous area in yunnan for the thai people okay. and uh, so basically the remote ancestors of of the ahoms or the ahoms back in 1215 or thereabouts mm-hmm. they uh, they came from that part of the world they came from somewhere around yunnan northern myanmar border border and area and uh, then uh, they basically their uh, records mention that they arrived uh, through what uh, you know through to Myanmar and uh, through parts of what are now Arunachal uh, into Assam and uh, then for the next three or so centuries they fought battles with the local existing uh, statelets small kingdoms and gradually established themselves as the local empire mm-hmm. so so that is the history <laughs> and uh, then uh, uh i think the other thing you were mentioning is basically that I, yeah that uh, uh when there was this sort of revivalism in a sense of a separate uh, assamese identity a separate assamese nationalism under alpha yes. which was uh, separatist in character yes. uh most of the uh, alpha people have come over ground now and they are in stocks or they've surrendered yeah. but uh, there is one person who has not surrendered and uh he is parish bariya uh, the leader now of the military wing of the, of the original alpha mm-hmm. and uh, he uh, he is believed his whereabouts are of course not officially known but uh, or or not uh, shall i say not uh, publicly known but uh, he is believed to be somewhere in in uh, yunnan around that same uh, thai autonomous area from where the ahoms had once upon a time ियलोनियल Malik got la- life imprisonment Alil received what was a terrible punishment then and his dream retirement plan now he was exiled to the Andaman Islands and I was thinking seriously <laughs> yeah now I can imagine like, work from home from the Andaman Islands <laughs> <laughs> yeah but that back there was kala pani you know but <laughs> you know. yeah, yeah so yeah. how things can change you know I also constantly thought of that when I was reading the book how you, you know you you caught how places change so much culturally linguistically and in the composition of the people you know over just a few hundred years you know we we yeah. we you yeah, know yeah, yeah. Our, it's not just the places that change it is also the notions of self that change yeah. how people imagine themselves change ways of life change the way every every ordinary life is lived so i was very interested in writing this book in thinking about the structures within which ordinary lives are lived yeah so i am interested in 
of course, the state structure, in other words, the internal and external boundaries of the state. Mm. But I'm also interested in how a, a normal person lives a life. And if you think about it, uh, most of the things that we do in our daily lives today were actually unthinkable to some extent in, in uh, even uh, 150 years ago. Yeah. The things that surround us. Yeah. There was no electricity. Yeah. There were barely any tarred, I mean, there were no tarred roads. Yeah. Uh, there were no motor cars. Yeah. There was, of course, no mobile phone and no internet and no television mm-hmm. and uh, no pipe water for the most part. Yeah. So, you know, everything uh, from the moment, from the way people brush their teeth yeah. to onwards, basically from the simple to the complex, from what they do with their lives on a day to day basis, everything was very different. And that's just 150 years ago, which is not at all a long time in historical. Yeah. So I was interested in the in the processes by which people acquired their modern identities and started living the kind of lives they you know it makes you think how just hundred and fifty like just to take hundred and fifty years. Hundred and fifty years ago, everybody thought uh, all of us are I identities like our ancestors' identities were very different, right? They thought of themselves in a totally different ways. They would never recognize how we think of ourselves. Yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah. I think that that's one of the Definitely. things about your book that mm, makes you, you know, you realize that as well. You think of that as well. So, yeah. was it something you thought of when you were writing it? It's been on my mind for a long time. I've always been interested about how things change so suddenly uh, for people in general. For half the world's population, the female half definitely, because 150 years ago, regardless of whether you were in the East or in the West, whether you were Hindu, Christian or Muslim, your life would have been a lot more constricted. So that's already half the world's population that we're talking about. Hmm. Then you look at every culture by itself and you realize that uh, basically the modern identity and the way people think of themselves now just didn't exist. And, Hmm. And it's happened... In some cases, 200 years ago started to happen. In some cases, 150. In some cases, 120. But it's not a long time. And uh, so that, that, you know, that awareness of the newness of the way we think of ourselves, I think is important to us today because there is a tendency to project the present anachronistically back into the past. That is ahistorical. Yes. You cannot project history back into the past when it did not, the time when it did not. Yeah, yeah. So, so we should not project modern identities and modern boundaries and modern notions of self back into a remote past. We have to, whether we like it or not. Mm-hmm. The truth is what it is. And yeah. if uh, things were different in the past, then they were different in the past. That's just how it was. We may not like things about that past. We accept it. We say it was like that then, but we don't like it now, so we can change it for the future. That's okay. Mm. But to project it back into the past, my objection is that it is ahistoric, it is anachronist. How long did it take you to write this book? You worked on it simultaneously. Was it just an idea when you're doing the Brahmaputra book? Yeah. So, well, I mean, I have been spiraling away material for a while and I have always, of course, had my interest in the region, but uh, the actual uh, book would probably not have happened if it were not for Michael Dwyer at first. Mm. And uh, because 
he said he was looking for somebody who could write this kind of uh, account of the history of northeast india uh, that he had been looking for such a book for years and of course then it became something that i ended up doing <laughs> so so uh, if it was not for that then i guess the uh, book would not have happened it wouldn't have happened without that conversation must have been kind of complicated getting all this info but how did you go about it so just run me through how you did it you know how did you break it down and you break broke it down statewide but clearly you know you must have worked on many states simultaneously because you can't just work only on one no i did them one by one oh you did them so first of all i did them one by one because each is each is a separate history so each has to be researched separately and uh, so it was not even state by state it was community by community oh my so god the of, the, of the vaitais had to be researched then the history of the kukis then the history of the nagas then in meghalaya the history of the khasis the history of the garos and so like that basically so it was mostly community by community that it had to be researched because each has its own history and then you wove it all together now it's turning yes. even more complicated <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I found it all really fascinating that the, that bit about the Muslim Maitais, you know, uh, the Manipuris who are Muslims. Yeah, 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 yeah. All those yeah, yeah. details, you know. Yeah. So yeah. So this, I mean, this is still it's it's a simplified uh, overview, and mm-hmm. I'm saying that again and again because actually it's a lot more complicated. I've simplified it and I've sort of condensed it, and so it's a simplified overview. But actually, the potential—if if if uh, historians were to do it the way they do things in the academy, then this would run into a number of volumes. I think it could easily run into one volume for each chapter, basically. So you would have nine or ten volumes of a you know of an encyclopedia essentially. Yeah, yeah. Even those royal chronicles that you mentioned, even those are so run into so many volumes, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, tell me you know I, i mean those the bits about the royal chronicles and all, how did you access that you know those things so i have uh, limitations of language i can basically i, I read mainly english i can read hindi i can read bangla i can read assamese hmm. but uh, there are so many more languages that one needs to know to look at the whole region yeah. and uh, so i had to rely essentially on what is available in english or in english translation that's what happened so i for example in the case of manipur i looked at the english translation of the chaitarol kumpapa uh, by saroj uh, nalindi arambam palak mm. and uh, so that is the text that i used as the main sort of text when i'm looking at that part of the story Hmm. and uh, you know that's how i i proceeded i had to use some texts extensively uh, because they are the only english translations available of certain texts hmm. and when you using some of the colonial i mean you mentioned even that in the preface when you using using some of the colonial texts i mean at first one is a bit shocked by the language that they use and then you start laughing because <laughs> it's so absurd the mongoloid people <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> What are you well, saying? I mean, But it no, is authentic. So, you know. so, so basically, that's part of what I've said in my introduction, and it's yes. part of what I've emphasized throughout the book as well. Yes. That uh, I consider it anachronistic to project our values into the past. 
Yes. So, so of course, the people, you know, there was racism in the past, and we know it. There yes. was colonialism in the past, and we absolutely know it. Yeah. And uh, so we should not then try to airbrush the past thing, you know, trying to make it a sanitized version of what it was. Yeah. If you know, if if things were a certain way, they were a certain way, and thankfully they are not that way anymore. Yeah. But people used certain words and you know referred to people in certain ways that are is not done anymore. And uh, you know that's true for communities, for genders, for all sorts of you know within Hinduism for castes. Yes, you can go on about how people were referred to, and it's true that it was it, it that's how it was and. We can talk about the moral value of that, that it is wrong and agree that it was wrong. Mm-hmm. But uh, uh, I cannot change the historical record and uh, use a different word because, uh, you know, if that's the word in the historical record, if that's how the colonial officer wrote it, then for accurate representation, I think I should give the quote as it was. Yes, uh, I'm glad you did because <laughs> it kind of like gets you in the face and you think, my God, you know. <laughs> And then, then it's yeah. a weirdly comic thing, you know. You, you're you're struck yeah. by, <laughs> you you're not really so and sure it, as. You know. Yeah, and there, I mean, there were so many things. We we can, we can talk about uh, you know uh, how they referred to people, but we must also remember that other societies were also quite uh, different and uh, in their treatment of people. So, for example, there was slavery, yes. and in India, we have airbrushed slavery out of our past. I yes. guess slavery was something that existed only in America. Yes. Of course not. Mm. You know, societies in India had people had slaves and even tribal societies had slaves. And we have it in the historical record that, you know, we see the colonial officers we were talking about yeah. emancipating slaves. And in some yeah. cases, this in fact continued in some parts, for example, of Arunachal Pradesh. It happened even after the colonial period. You can find references in the works of Barrier Elvin where he goes and he actually buys somebody out of slavery and sets that person free. So it's, so it's something that we've, we've decided to forget yes. because it is awkward or inconvenient. But we must acknowledge that the past was different and our ancestors may have been uh, brought up very differently from us and looked at the world very differently from us and done things we wouldn't do. Yeah. That's fine. Forget, forget our ancestors our... are not us. <laughs> forget our ancestors. Even our parents have different value systems, right? In many yeah, yeah, yeah. many areas. So, yeah. well. <laughs> anyway. So, yeah. So, this thing about slavery and you've mentioned even in Tripura, uh, you know, the uh, existence of slavery and all this so but this is another another area that really actually we've uh, blanked it out completely so it's awkward for everybody it's awkward for everybody so everybody just quietly erased it from memory yeah but but it was there and uh, you know there was a vast movement of slaves in and out of the country there were yes it was an international trade. It was, it was, fact, it was a global trade. And yes. uh, so there was a movement of slaves from the north into Central Asia. Yes. <laughs> from the east and northeast, from Chittagong port and from the Arakan coast yes. out uh, across the seas. Yeah. So uh, we have records in the colonial record, for example, very interesting tidbits that just suddenly come up. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, for example, one finds 
somewhere mentioned that uh, uh, in the Lushai Hills of what is now Mizora, mm. uh, they're saying that uh, you could, you know, those people used to get guns from their southern villages towards mm. Saratan. Mm. Uh, and the exchange price was because it was not a money for money. Money is a thing in many parts of the world, you know, cash or coins. Yeah. And uh, so it was a barter economy. Yeah. And uh, so the exchange rate was one slave, four and a half feet tall for two guns. For two guns? So, <laughs> for two guns. <laughs> so, so, you know, those things are specified. And uh, so you, even the type of gun and the type of slave would be specified. And, and what kind of gun you could get for what kind of slave would be specified. And it's all wow. So, so when that king exchanged his daughter to one of the uh, Burmese, uh, the Myanmar, one of the, you know, during those conflicts, so that must have been really a big, a big uh, 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 thing. Because his daughter must be worth a lot more than uh, one slave for four and a half feet, right? For two yeah. guns. So her, so, the, they must have, her value must be many more guns, I guess. I don't know. So, so uh, that was a thing that used to happen where uh, kings used to give their uh, daughters in marriage uh, yeah. to other kings. Uh, sometimes in the case of, uh, you know, when they, when they faced it. Mm-hmm. And uh, so then you would have terms of indemnity. Uh, mm-hmm. the, and, and those terms would include money, like gold, this much gold, that much silver. Elephants, in many cases, were, because elephants were a precious commodity in the Northeast, which you couldn't get in many other places. Mm-hmm. So you would get, for example, the Mughals, when they came in and they were initially successful and then their terms of indemnity with which uh, they concluded their agreement with the you know, defeated Ahom king. Mm. Uh, it included gold, silver and uh, a daughter to be given in marriage Yes, to the, to the Mughal Empire. Yes. Similar things happened with the Burmese as well. So the Burmese kings, when they successfully attacked them, they would also get war indemnities and then they would also get one daughter of the king in marriage. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was it was whoever was victorious. So even the victorious Ahom kings would do the same with others whom they defeated. The victorious yeah. Manipur king would do the same with others whom they defeated. That was how it was. Gosh. <laughs> right. So, um, yeah, so let's talk about Tripura now. You know, Tripura's, mm, I mean, for somebody from the supposed mainstream of India, you know, it's one of the lesser known states, but it's got such a complicated history and it's so, there's so many twists and turns to it. So talk about that, you know, and it was an ancient kingdom which suddenly came into modernity and I, and I didn't realize like the, the, the heading of your the chapter itself kind of reveals from, uh, from the center to the periphery. What is it? Yeah. Uh, Tripura's slow journey to the periphery. From connectedness yeah. to speed personality, you know, and and yeah. you bring that out, and that's really, really fascinating. You know, I didn't know. I mean, most people who pro- probably are not from the northeast don't know this. You know how no, it changed. Even in the northeast, in the in the northeast. northeast uh, I think Tripura became it, it got tucked away in a corner after independence. Yeah, but uh, if you look at the map, then actually it's it's uh, very close to Chittagong Port, and yes. uh, so Chittagong Port is. One is one of the great ports of the world. Yeah. yeah. And uh, so 
the connection with the world was always there mm. and uh, uh, you know the portuguese were there like i mentioned earlier they were there yes. long ago they were there uh, before 1600 they were already <laughs> in that part of the world in the 1500 something mm. and uh, the moguls were there in the in the plains of bengal nearby the kings of arakan were there so tripura the kings of tripura were always uh, and the tripura kingdom was always uh, uh, fighting with feuding with engaging with all these powers that mm. were around it mm. and uh, so its its history is actually connected history connected to many parts of the world through mm. those you know places and through those to other kingdoms and through tripura Mm-hmm. Uh, it was a much bigger kingdom that it sprawled across the plains of Bangladesh, which is now Bangladesh. Mm-hmm. Uh, that started to change during the Mughal period, after the reign of Jahangir, during and after the reign of Jahangir, and uh, the kings of Tripura uh, lost a few battles with the Mughals. They held on to their uh, part of their territory in the hills eventually, mm-hmm. but the part in the plains. Was gradually taken over by the Mughals, mm-hmm. and that became what came to be known as Chakla Roshnav. And when the British moved in, uh, they inherited those territories from the Mughals. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, basically, the, the parts of Tripura in the plains became a part of British India, mm-hmm. and the king of Tripura remained a zamindar, mm-hmm. paying taxes to the British yeah. in his estates in the plains, which mm-hmm. which were almost. Uh, you know, they were a large part of the kingdom, and uh, they were definitely uh, the paying part of the kingdom. You know, that's where most of the crops grew and most of the trade happened. So, so, uh, so basically, Tripura, uh, the kingdom existed in two parts. In the old maps, you can find old British maps. You can find it marked as Hill Tipera and Tipera, and Tipera is the plains part, and Hill Tipera is the hill part, which is now the Indian state of Tripura. Yeah. So that partition, the part of uh, the plains, mm. the Tripura in the plains, places like Noakhali, which people remember because of the infamous riots that happened, and yeah. Kumilla, the main town in that in that part of the world. Uh, so these went to, you know, went to East Pakistan partition, mm. and eventually became part of Bangladesh. Mm. The, the refugees from there moved. Into the hills, uh, hill hill Tripura, and also to you know some some of them came across into what is now Meghalaya or other parts of East India mm. or to Bengal for that matter. But basically, there was a, an exodus of refugees from those areas and from other parts of East Pakistan, mainly Hindu refugees. Mm. Uh, that came to have uh, an important uh, impact on the subsequent political history of Tripura because again, it's the usual thing. You've got yes. a large number of refugees coming in, taking over local lands, mm. and the local tribals are becoming a minority, mm. and they do become a minority after after the large number of refugees come in. Uh, mm. So that has then become part of the political history of of Tripura, which determined its politics and continues in some sense to determine its politics up to the present. Mm. so these you know and also the story of the uh, like the you know i didn't i didn't know i mean i'd heard of him but the the first uh, law minister of pakistan was uh, um, yeah that, that's also, yeah that's yeah. also a fascinating story and so tragic yeah. as well you know yeah, so yeah, yeah. 
you've brought in all those aspects um, you know this little uh, and even another fascinating characters you mentioned some uh, a lady who's a i can't remember her name uh, she's um, she she's a gorilla and she's an anthropologist <laughs> oh that? yeah yeah ursula graham bauer yeah talk about her i found that great like you know what is this person i, I don't know a lot about her but i've i've looked at her her work in relation to the manipur hills and the and the naga areas so she she was an anthropologist working in those areas who during world war 2 uh, became a gorilla uh, because basically at that time uh, the japanese of course invaded through not through burma into northeast india and reached uh, manipur uh, yes. and nagaland they reached yes. kohima yeah and uh, along with the indian national army of netaji subhash chandra bose Yes, and uh, so uh, the British, of course, were concerned about you know this impending invasion, which uh, remained impending for a couple of years before it actually happened. Mm. And uh, during this time, they they took steps to defend the territory, mm. and as part of this, they set up a force called the V Force, which was an irregular guerrilla force. Mm. And uh, so, Sula Graham Bauer was associated with the V Force. Oh. Yeah, there were other such forces also which operated out of northeast India. For example, uh, the Chindits, a very famous yes. unit, yes. Uh, special forces. They operated out of, uh, used to launch from Imphal mm. into, mm. into occupied Burma, into Japanese-occupied yeah. Burma. Yeah. yeah. So there were various kinds of special forces uh, and guerrilla units which were operating in what is now northeast India. Yeah, hey, and you talk about Cookie, uh, about the Naga forces also, and how the I think it's the Cookies who refused to um, refused to yes. fight. Yeah, uh, they were conscripting uh, forces for uh, serving. This was not in the second; that was in the first one. First one. Yeah, they were conscripting uh, mostly labor force uh, to fight uh, to to help in the you know. in the battlefields of europe mm-hmm. and uh, so they managed to recruit people from various parts of northeast india meghalaya nagaland uh, parts of the manipur hills but the cookies uh, were reluctant and so the cookie chiefs <laughs> refused mm-hmm. and then the british tried to force them and uh, that led to a, what is called the anglo cookie war Uh, but that what the British colonial records of the time referred to as rebellion or clash or whatever, and uh, so they basically fought this this protracted war, a small war in the middle of the largest world war the world had ever seen, the First World War. There was also a small war going on between the British Indian Empire and the Cookies in the hills wow. of Manipur. <laughs> so yeah. fascinating. Yeah. yeah, and these labor forces. I think they they can conscripted people from across the country because I remember seeing a, a plaque in the museum in the grounds of the museum in Trishur, which says okay. like twenty thousand men went from this village <laughs> to the Great yeah. War. I just stared at it. Yeah, you know. Yeah, yeah. We have not. Yeah, even, they, we don't even yeah, they, they conscripted. Yeah, yeah, we forgot it. The, yeah. There were so many Indians from undivided India, from yes. from across you know, India, Pakistan, and Bangladesh, who fought in the First World War. Uh, I've been to the battlefield of Gallipoli in what is mm-hmm. now Turkey, and uh, over there, I remember being, uh, you know, 
surprised because I was till then unaware of the extent to which Indian forces were uh, involved in the Battle of Gallipoli. So it was basically the Anzacs, which is the Australian New Zealand forces, and the and the Indians who fought in Gallipoli. Oh, so they did fight all over the world. <laughs> Large yeah. numbers. Yeah. So okay, but you know this specific community. Why? Why is thing? I mean, I I knew that they had been conscripted, but I didn't know that each you know each place had this specific history, and you know that the cookies like refused to go, others went, you know, and yeah. this specific yeah. thing about a small war within the whole war that's really fascinating, no? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The complexities of India. Seriously. Yeah. <laughs> hmm. And uh, yeah. So then this. So you say here that. And also these like little details about the Hazrat Bal uh, thing causing uh, a whole exodus of ten thousand Indians in hundred uh, thousand through nineteen sixty four. Yeah, a strand yeah, yeah. went missing from a shrine near Shri. So you know when things like things happen today, there's a riot somewhere, and then in Bangladesh, the people uh, you know start fighting. This is part of a tradition. Clearly, <laughs> it's been ongoing forever. Yeah. Well, I mean, the world is is interconnected. the The uh, density of connections has increased over time, thanks to the evolution of modern technologies, modern yeah. communications technologies. Yeah. But the fact of connection has been there for a very long time. Yeah. The pace and density of connections is what is different. Yeah. But the fact of connection is actually ancient, and. Uh, it probably goes back to the out of Africa hypothesis of theory or whatever, but you know, mm-hmm. it goes back to the, the dawn of the of Homo sapiens that, mm-hmm. that people have been connected and have moved about. Yeah, no, but I mean, in contemporary times, we have this idea that oh, you know, because of WhatsApp or before WhatsApp, because of uh, because of TV, you know, the BBC showing this, and therefore this other thing happened somewhere else. But clearly not. I mean, <laughs> Pre-television, like you know, nineteen sixty-four, yeah, yeah. like you know, if Hazrat yeah, yeah. Bal hair goes missing and and riots happen yeah. in Bangladesh, and then hundred thousand uh, Hindu Bengalis run into Tripura, like yeah, yeah. so yeah. it's been there forever. Yeah, so, yeah. 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 So all those conne- I found that fascinating, you know, in in the book, all these um, all these interconnected threads. You know, from and one doesn't think of Myanmar as playing such a huge role, but clearly, in the northeast, it's even more connected to that side. So it's just the fact of geography. It's just that Myanmar is right there, and so for uh, Assam and for Manipur, and therefore, by extension, for northeast India as a whole, mm. uh, the Burmese Empire had a defining role mm. in the history of of the region. It was. The Burmese conquest of the uh, Ahom and Manipur kingdoms and their subsequent uh, reign of terror, mm. which uh, sort of brought them within striking distance also of British, uh, British India, the British Indian territories of Bengal, mm. including Calcutta. Mm. And that the East India Company records of where they're talking about this. And then, so it's building up, it builds up for, for a while. And uh, eventually, then uh, the Burmese attack uh, place near Chittagong again, uh, mm-hmm. just across from Arakan, mm-hmm. uh, across the Naft River over there. And uh, 
they uh, attacked what was then you know that was their first attack on on what was British India. Yes. So, so the British decided to retaliate in mm. force and declared war eventually on, on the Burmese. That led to the Anglo-Burmese War, which uh, ran from 1824 to 1826. And after that, uh, the treaty concluded, the Treaty of Yandabo concluded at the end of the war, a uh, lot of territories came into British India. Eventually, the whole of Northeast India became a part of British India as a consequence of battles with the Burmese, mm. between British India and the Burmese. Mm. Yeah, I hear uh, it is. The politics of representation. When um, the first speaker on the first resolution of the, uh, at the first session of the Congress held in Bombay in December 1885 was Subramanya Iyer of Madras after declaring that by, mercury, by a merciful dispensation of providence, Britain had rescued India from centuries of external aggression and internal strife, Iyer summed up the benefits of British rule in one remarkable fact that for the first time in the history of the Indian population, there is to be beheld the phenomenon of national uni unity among them of a sense of national existence. He was commending the British Raj for having invented the idea of an Indian nation. The Indian as a political identity followed. And it's true. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The only yeah. thing maybe that we have them to thank for. <laughs> well, among <Yeah>. others. <laughs> so the the idea of the nation as a you know as as a uh, as the default system yeah. of state, if you like. The yeah. default kind of state, the nation state as the default kind of state is something that starts to happen <laughs> fairly late in the day around the world. Yes. And uh, it's definitely after the French Revolution. Yes. And uh, so uh, in the case of India, we don't find this idea of India as a nation uh, going back into the past. Yeah. Uh, we just start getting this idea fairly late into the colonial yes after you know i would say that uh, it's it's visible i can speak with some uh, some confidence about northeast india one starts to see it only after the establishment of british administration yes yeah so so you know Sabrat, i could keep talking to you because this is a great book i'm really enjoying it you know um and uh, uh, so, but we have to wind up. So, for the listeners, you go out and get Northeast India Political History by Samrat Chaudhary. It's a great read and um, it's a very um, interesting one and a very educational one at the same time, which is like fantastic that you managed to do both. So, everybody should read it because we, we're really ignorant about the North, Northeast and something we should be ashamed of. So, we as in like the average Indian, you know, means the main... What do you call it? The mainlanders. Mainlanders in inverted <laughs> commas. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so thank you so much for talking to me. Thanks, Manjula. Yeah, thanks for having me on the talk. Okay. Bye. Bye. To stay updated on this podcast, follow us at HD Smartcast on all the major social media platforms. To listen to more such podcasts, log on to www.hdsmartcast.com.